Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 69th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is why clarity drives productivity. I'm joined by Anne Latham. She is the author of The Power of Clarity, Unleash the True Potential of Workplace Productivity, Confidence, and Empowerment. The publisher is Bloomsbury Business. Anne has consulted for big global companies like Boeing and Medtronic, as well as public television, and she's the author of two other books, The Clarity Papers and Uncommon Meetings. She's been interviewed by the New York Times, Bloomberg Business Week, and Forbes, where she is also an expert blogger. Welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you. It's good to be here, Dan. Excellent. So give us a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, I truly believe that clarity is the answer to most problems and certainly productivity. (laughs) We can improve so much if we can increase our clarity. So the book starts out trying to give, well, it gives multiple examples for how unclear we are because we don't really know where we are, where we are unclear. We don't really understand that. So the book tries to lay that out first, and then it explains why we are unclear and what we can do about it and what the incredible benefits are of greater clarity. Okay. Now you realize as an interviewer, a woman who's written a book called On Clarity, that puts a little bit of pressure on me to to be as clear and concise as possible, (laughs) but I will try to live up to your standards. Um, One place I would like to start is with the problem, and the problem is the lack of clarity. And you have quite a few terms here that are are wonderful, uh, and they're very instructive as well. So I I wanted to touch on a few of those just as kind of a, a a soft, inviting way into the conversation, and then we'll move on to the the deep significance of these problems and how to solve them. But I think this will give listeners a little bit of a flavor. Let's start with kitchen sink syndrome. What does that mean, and what's the uh, you know what's the realm we're talking about? Uh, kitchen sink syndrome. Well, you all know about you know the kitchen sink with everything in it, and so this is evoking that image of of 
things swirling around in a mess. And we tend to, in conversations and especially in meetings, wander into conversations without being very explicit either about what needs to be different when we're done or what the process is that we are going to follow to get to that desired conclusion. So I yeah, can no, give, I, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to give you an example. Oh, yeah, by all means. So I, I remember sitting in a meeting with an executive team. These were highly devoted, accomplished, smart people, and I was on the agenda to talk with them. But before they wanted to dive into that matter, they had an urgent matter on hand. And so they started just discussing that. And I was listening and I was supposed to just be listening quietly. But after a little while, I couldn't stand it any longer because they were getting nowhere. So I interrupted them, uh, ignored the dagger eyes I got and said, do you realize that you are talking about five different decisions simultaneously (laughs) and and two plans? You know, and they just glared at me. But then I enumerated those five decisions and those two plans. And it's like the light bulbs went on and everyone was just, wow. Uh, They knew I was absolutely right. And furthermore, they immediately realized what order they would have to tackle those five decisions in. And they just dove in and got it done. And so instead of talking around this issue for probably an hour and then having to reschedule with another meeting, they made those decisions in 15 minutes, laid their initial plans for what they needed to do, and they were ready to move on. But that's what we do. That's a that kitchen sink conversation where you dive in before you're clear about what you're trying to accomplish and you start talking about too many things at once. Uh, I, I so relate to that. And I'm so impressed by the way that you managed to survive the dagger eyes and get them to that place. So not only are you good at clarity, you must be a fairly good diplomat as well. Um, so congratulations. So we've hit on kitchen sink syndrome. I think we kind of touched on wandering in. We're going to go back to meetings, certainly as part of this conversation. Uh, another term I delighted in was hand-me-down ambiguity. Um, you want to say a bit on that? Yeah. Hand-me-down ambiguity is when your boss isn't clear about what needs to be accomplished and thinks that if he hands it down to you, you will suddenly be able to get things accomplished and you'll, you'll know, you'll just know somehow. But, but it gets back to the problem where people are, don't realize how unclear they are. So this boss doesn't even know he's being unclear and he hands the mess to you and leaves you to guess or to probe and try to figure out where things are going. So a good example of this was I got an email from a woman one day who said, oh, I love reading your articles and your newsletter. And what I'd really like some advice on is how I can think faster on my feet. And so I was I was pretty intrigued. I actually got into a little conversation with her and she explained that she just gets freezes up and she can't respond to questions. So I probed and she said, well, you know, like I'm, she's in a healthcare environment and people would come in to, you know, the, the big wigs would come down to her wing and they would turn to her and say something like, how are things going? And she would just freeze because she didn't know how to respond. And as a result, she felt completely inadequate. She was upset with herself. She would freeze. And the reality is that's the dumbest question in the world because it is so vague. They weren't asking for anything specific whatsoever. And yet she's taking the, the blame for this on herself. You know, she's the one who's feeling bad. And it, that's just terrible. But um, they should be more specific. They should find out, you know, what, 
they should ask for whatever it is they specifically need. And in talking to her, there are other situations where she's she's crystal clear when she's you know on the job and people when she knows what people need, she has no problem thinking on her feet. So it's terrible that they can just pass down this ambiguity and she's just left flustered and guessing and feeling bad. Yeah, no. Well, I, I've I've uh, experienced that as well. The ambiguous yeah. uh, directions that aren't directions whatsoever. Um, there's two solutions that often get uh, thrown around that you're you're not fan, a fan of. Uh, one is SWOT analysis, and other is listing pros and cons. Yeah. Uh, do you want to maybe go into those two things for just for a moment? Yeah, SWOT, which is listing strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, is a frequent. Uh, task or part of the process for strategic planning. And it, it, it drives me crazy because I think it's popular <laughs> just because it's easy to remember and it's yep. simple to execute. But when you think about it, it's kind of silly because when you're doing strategic planning, you should be focused on the customer. And strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, there's no C in there for customer. <laughs> they leave out the customer. <laughs> so people fill in these four boxes about what their, those strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats are, and it's very random, and who knows the quality of the thought that ends up in those boxes, and then somehow you're supposed to come out of this with some sort of strategic plan. So I don't like the process. Pros and cons is another issue. Okay. Do you want to go into that one just a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I can do that. When you leap into decisions, we usually go straight to pros and cons of the alternatives. And we usually start our decisions with alternatives instead of, wait a minute, what are the decision criteria? What are the objectives? What are we trying to accomplish? So we actually are starting on step three of our decision and we start batting around pros and cons. Well, the problem with pros and cons is that they they give you the benefits and, you know, the advantages and disadvantages of an alternative without necessarily having any relation to what you want to accomplish. They're like standalone <laughs> yeah. and just involving that alternative as opposed to what's important here, what decision criteria matter. So you can list a lot of pros and cons for something without realizing that most of them are irrelevant to your situation. Yeah, no, I, I can relate to that. I, going back to the SWAT for a moment, and as you mentioned, the lack of C for customers. I've ser served in corporate life, and what was amazing to me is, especially the bigger the organization, the more the conversations were all about turf battles, and the customers almost were like out of sight, out of mind. It was just, it was amazing. And yet, of course, they're the revenue stream, but um, right. so it so it goes. So let, let's plunge into the, the serious matter of how to start to address these things. And I think we have to start with what you call the cognitive zones. That's one more term, at least, for people, maybe a few more. But uh, it kind of gets to the 80-20 rule. You have a couple of key charts that involve the cognitive zone. So I want to give you a chance to, even if it takes a bit, to to explain this to it, listeners, because it's so fundamental to the argument you're making. Right. Okay, so... The, the clearest part of almost any organization is the part of the organization that's delivering to the customer. It's the production processes. And it doesn't matter whether that's a manufacturing company or whether that's a service company, but those processes of how do you get the value, provide the value, build the parts, deliver the service, those are the areas where things are clearest. 
And that's usually their, that's the clear processes, clear priorities, clear objectives. And that's where we've focused all our attention in, in making process improvements pretty much over the last many decades. Well, those processes are all physical processes. They move physical objects. They move trucks and parts and forms and applications, depending on what business you're in. But as you move away from the production area in a company into the area of knowledge workers and managers, they are not moving physical objects around on a daily basis. Their job involves moving cognitive objects, things like ideas and plans and decisions. And we have spent very little time or energy helping people figure out how you move decisions and ideas and plans through a group and come to consensus or final decisions. So these cognitive objects, we don't even think of the cognitive processes as existing. For instance, if you if you think in terms of decision making, people don't think in terms of process. They just mostly get in a room and talk and then try to figure it out. Whereas yeah, can you, kitchen sink syndrome, et cetera. Yes. Kitchen sink syndrome, exactly. Whereas, you know, if you really want to be efficient about making a decision, you should understand what the basic steps are of decision making and focus on those steps one at a time. So everyone is focused on the same step at the same time, contributing. You know, it's like playing the game the same way so that you're you're not stepping on each other and well, and getting back to your kitchen sink conversation. Okay. And what I like about the chart in part is that, yeah, you show that the clarity is really large back at the production part and you get a little bit, which comes back during the CEO's involvement, because now you're down to one decision maker who, you know, seemingly doesn't have to look over their shoulders and should be fairly decisive. But in between you have this terrible trough and this is where the lack of productivity comes in. Correct. Right. So that clarity curve, like you say, starts really high in production and then it drops way down. And then sometimes, not always, there's an uptick when you get to the CEO end of the building. So left to right, we're getting farther and farther away from production. And everything above that curve is what I call the cognitive zone, because that's where you're dealing mostly with cognitive objects. And we don't think in terms of processes and efficiency when we're dealing with cognitive objects. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely love the diagram. I mean, I can tell you that when I was in corporate life, I worked directly for the CEO. So I was really fortunate, but I would go back to my department and people were just drowning in lack of clarity and, yes. and productivity. And I think we have to talk about meetings because so much time is spent on meetings. I used to say that, you know, in my company, what should take a minute took an hour and what should take an hour took a day and what should take a day takes a week and so forth. And the, the lack of efficiency was just overwhelming and everybody was swallowed up by these meetings. So let's, let's talk about the, the role of meetings in this terrible, you know, quagmire. <laughs> That's the cognitive zone. Right. Right. Well, meetings are huge and the average employee spends probably 25% of their time in meetings, but the, the, a lot of people spend far more than that. And the CEOs are, or the executives are often booked for you know, eight one-hour meetings a day and then some, and they often have to skip meetings to attend other meetings. So meetings are huge in terms of the amount of time they consume. And as everyone knows, <laughs> they are also incredibly wasteful. It's pretty much a universal complaint that meetings accomplish very little. And that is despite 
spending billions of dollars. I mean, whole industries that are trying to improve meetings. And if you think about the way we usually try to improve meetings, it's with rules and tools like templates uh, and agendas and timekeepers and big clocks and rules like you got to lock the door when the meeting starts and you got to throw your cell phones in a bucket. And we have all these rules geared at controlling people as if people are the problem for unproductive meetings. When the reality is that most meetings are these kitchen sink conversations. And the simple truth is that most meetings begin without people being clear about what needs to be different when they are done. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that. I I confess that I would add that in my experience, too many people are in the meetings typically. Yes. Uh, People who are not going to add value. They're not a decision maker. They don't have something to say, and they may even remain silent for almost the entire conversation. Um, Yes. Why why does that happen? Why are so many people in these these meetings? Yeah, well, if we are unclear about what needs to be different when we're done, then we're going to be unclear about who to invite (laughs) to the meeting. And if we, you know, if you think about the rule where they sometimes lock the doors when the meeting's supposed to start, so if you're not there on time, you can't get in. Okay, so this is just proof that they think these meetings can go on without these people. Now, if you are only inviting people who are absolutely essential to the process of your meeting, then locking them out is totally ridiculous because how can you proceed if they are essential? Sure. It, one thing that occurred to me as I was sitting these, I, I went back in my experience to a funny comment that Meryl Streep said. She said, I thought life would be like college, but it's a lot like high school. <laughs> and when I was in corporate life and going from meeting to meeting, I went, oh, my God, this is like being back in high school. And we're just sitting in one class after another. And then I said, wait a second, is this possibly that people attend meetings where they're peripheral because they want to socialize? Is it because it's the specter of office politics and they're afraid if they're not there, they won't know what's being said maybe about them, otherwise behind their back, where they could be injured? Do you think that plays any role in this? I, I'm just – the socializing and the fear of, of office politics seems to me at least – two other explanations for why so many people are in these meetings unnecessarily. Well, I think that, yeah, I mean, some people like to socialize and let's face it also extroverts like to talk. So, you know, the introverts tend to be the ones who try to get out of the meetings more than the extroverts. But I think that you hit part of it. And that is that your, that fear of being left out. But most of these people simultaneously have too much to do. Yes. (laughs) Fear of being left out isn't necessarily because they have to be in on everything. It's because they are so unclear about what's going to be accomplished in the meeting that they don't know whether they need to be there. So if, if things look like they're, you know, if they're totally unclear and, it, and you're afraid they're going to get out of control, then you need to be there to get your two cents worth in. However, if it was totally clear about what needs to be different when the meeting ends and you understood who was being invited and what role they were playing, then you would be able to say, oh, yeah, you know, Joe can represent my opinion on that. I don't need to be there, too. Or let's just have one of us go. But I don't think it's that people, you know, feel like, oh, I just have to be in, in on everything. They just want to be sure everything's under control and stupid decisions aren't made. So clarity... Clarity makes it possible for people to excuse themselves and say, you know, I'm not really needed. Yeah, no, and and they often are not needed. So they come in for whatever reason, and then they end up being bored, and they, you know, are a dead weight in the meeting. 
Yes. And and they have other things that you get done. So let's move into your process because you really have a way you've thought this through very carefully. Um, and you have a variety of terms. So I think we need to get to uh, S bar is one of them. IRS is another one I liked uh, reuse of, of that term. Uh, but you also have the cognitive six. And that seems to be almost the engine here. So what is the cognitive six? If you could take us through that. OK, so I talked earlier or didn't we talked about treadmill verbs anyway? The, yes, yeah. we did. yes, we did. <laughs> Another so, conversation, but yes, we talked about you know you need to be focusing on destination verbs, and the and the cognitive six are tied to the most important destination verbs. And at any given time, you should be trying to achieve one of these six, one of these five actually, um, no six. I'm sorry. Um, if you want to be sure you're accomplishing something, so the first one is a decision a plan, a problem resolution, a list. Now, I think the first three are, are pretty obvious, but what a list is, is a list is a part of a decision plan or a problem resolution. So, for instance, when you're making a decision, you need a list of objectives. You need a list of alternatives. You need a list of risks. So you're not always making a full decision. You're going in there and doing part of it, and that's a list. Um, for instance, with a plan. Uh, you need a list of resources. You need a list of tasks. So a list is a way to make the pieces of those more complicated processes concrete and you know tangible so yep. you can create the list and finish with them. Uh, the next one is confirmation. And the last one is approval. And those are similar. But confirmation, that's, uh, you know, when like when you go into a meeting and you say, look, I'm uh, or you go talk to your boss and say, well, look, this is what I've done so far. And this is what I'm thinking I should do next. Does that make sense? And you're looking for confirmation. You're looking for a simple yes or no. Now, the reality is that people aren't super clear when they make that request. So what usually happens is that everybody in the room wants to give them advice, tell their war stories, uh, tell them to watch out for this. And all the person wanted was a yes or a no. but Instead, it opens up the door to another kitchen sink conversation. So, but confirmation is really important. This is, it's, it's important for people to come in and say, look, this is where I am. This is what I'm thinking I'm going to do next. Is, does that make sense? Am I, is this good? And you just want a yes or a no. The, the sixth one is approval. And like confirmation, you're saying, this is where I am. This is what I want to do. Can I do it? Do I have permission to implement? Do I have your approval? And again, it's a yes or no, and it's very simple. The story I, I like to tell about this was for the, a client of mine who was uh, just kind of filling me in one day, you know, and we're in a coaching call about uh, what was happening. And he says, well, you know, I gave my marketing plan to my boss uh, like three weeks ago, and I haven't heard anything. And so I asked him, I said, well, what did you ask for? Well, I asked him to review the document, review being a treadmill verb, of course. And I yes. said, what did you need? He said, well, I just needed approval. So it's like, why didn't you ask for approval? So the next day, he goes back in, asks for approval, and his manager, who has been pushing this document off to the side because he doesn't know what's expected of him by being asked to review it, says, yes, go for it, get it done. And so, you know, like three weeks were wasted. And this poor guy thought maybe his plan wasn't very good. 
uh, all because he wasn't specific and asked for approval. So I maintain that almost any situation, whether you're in a meeting or talking to your boss or just alone at your desk, you are usually, if you're going to make any progress, pursuing a decision, a plan, a problem resolution, a list, confirmation, or authorization. And those are the cognitive six that will move you forward to real, honest-to-God progress. Sure. And you need time to actually focus and work this through as opposed to multitasking and, you know, kitchen sink, not only syndrome in terms of thinking, but in terms of actions, but actually have some continuity to what you're doing, right. um, which I think is wonderful. I, I had a uh, friend who didn't waste three weeks, wasted a year plus because a dissertation advisor at MIT said, well, here's a possible, you know, formula or process you could use to get to an outcome. And my poor friend worked with it for over a year, couldn't make it succeed. Finally brought it back to the advisor who said, oh, I just kind of threw that off to you. It, it was just something you could maybe look into. Uh, I, I had never vetted it. I didn't know if it was going to work. Yeah. And and poor Bob lost, you know, a year, year and change of his life trying oh, wow. to make this thing work. Yeah. So well, it, that actually is a great ex- example because the, the clarity that I'm talking about and, and a lot of the examples in my book are corporate examples, but the importance of clarity goes far beyond your business. I mean, this is your example of this guy. This is his life. And the clearer you are, the more productive and the more confident you're going to be about what you're trying to achieve and and how to get there. Yeah. Oh, and even worse in academia as a PhD student, you're not making much of any money. So uh, (laughs) you're not getting paid to suffer and you need to make, you need to get some things done here and get on with your life and get to a posting. So seems to me that there's kind of a division here and that, that these solutions, this need for clarity has two levels, both of them instrumentally important. One, maybe a bit more at the managerial level and one at the executive level. So I want to move to the executive level quite explicitly because you talk about also uh, two terms that come up. One is uh, strategic planning and whether they belong together and they can, but you also talk about perfectionist planning and the difficulty with that. So let's kind of make sure we're hitting the executive level of ensuring clarity takes place. What what could happen? What shouldn't happen? Well, the executive level clarity is really about setting the direction and establishing the framework for all the decisions made within the organization, right? Yep. And the the, the executives have to be sure that's crystal clear. And one of the biggest problems is people think that's where clarity stops. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you have a clear purpose. What else do you need? And that, that clarity at the 35,000 foot level is just the tip of the iceberg. And the biggest mistake executives make is not being specific enough in what that direction is and not making it easy for people not, not saying what we're not going to do. You have to be sure that it's narrow enough that people understand what you're not going to do so that they can say no. And it, if you have a very vague strategy and it's too broad and you haven't given people permission to say no and ignore certain things, uh, you're going to have all your resources spread way too thin. And, and speaking of resources, at one point you make a reference to the medical version is you call 911 and you can, you know, make your request and hopefully have clarity and get clarity back as to what needs to happen. 
what have you found? Are there certain people who get this most readily, who are able to step in and make the solutions? I mean, when I read the, the reference to nine one calling 911, I even said, I wonder if there should be a like a geek squad inside large companies uh, who can show up and are experts at and system and can really ensure that clarity happens for those who don't seem to get there themselves. What have you seen as who who uh, most benefits readily from the uptake and what are the kind of people or situations where it still seems like you got to keep squeezing them to get, you know, the uh, quagmire resolved? Yes. Okay. Good question. Because you, it's hard to embrace all these concepts and change your behavior. You're not going to do that overnight. Yep. And so people need I mean, the, the first step is just to be able to see what I call the disclarity, the lack of clarity surrounding you. If you can't see it, if you can't see that the kitchen sink conversation is going on, you're never going to be able to pre- prevent it. So people get their fastest if they work together so that they help each other see when they're not clear enough. And even though meetings might be the absolute worst of the quagmires (laughs) (laughs) meetings are also the absolute best place to practice clarity so because you're there together you can point things out to each other you can you can stop the meeting and say wait a minute what needs to be different when we're done what is the process why are these people here you know and so you can create clarity together and let, let me just make it clear that if you don't have clarity together, it's not clear. (laughs) You don't have clarity. I mean, you have to be in sync. You have to have shared sense of clarity and process clarity, or you've accomplished very little. So a meeting is actually the perfect place to uh, practice practically everything I talk about in the book and the perfect place to help each other and kind of coach each other and give each other permission to tell me, you know, tell me when I'm running awry of where we were trying to go. But the other thing is that that clarity, process clarity, if you establish a clear process and you're marching through a meeting and people are going off on tangents, which happens a lot, it's just a wonderful opportunity to say, you know, that's great. Save that. We're on step two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I have sat in too many meetings that had a beginning and a very long middle and what I would call no end to the story. Yes. And and certainly no tangible difference or advantage that came out of it. And yet, if it's a good meeting, and I've been in those as well, you do get to clarity and you get to a sense of community around decision and even some elation that you're making progress. So I would agree with you that they represent both the best and the worst of what often takes place. So I want to thank you, Anne, so much for our time. And I want listeners to know that this is a instrumentally valuable book. It has a battery of high-powered endorsements, and for a reason. Um, it, it's, it's such a clear underlying concept that in the factory mode of a company, there is a great deal of productivity efficiency. And once you move away from it, we have just tolerated for way too long uh, this wandering around uh, and thinking and overthinking and not thinking and just not getting the work done. And everybody suffers as a result of it. And this book really has a clarity, pun intended, to come up with solutions for this 
and it's well worth reading. So my guest, this has been episode number 69, uh, has been Why Clarity Drives Productivity. My guest, Anne Latham, she is the author of The Power of Clarity, Unleash the True Potential of Workplace Productivity, Confidence, and Empowerment. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. Or if you go to the New Books Network website and type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, you can see the other episodes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I actually took one from the comedian Conan O'Brien, the late night host, because it seemed like a good fit. He says, the beauty is that through disappointment, you can gain clarity. And with clarity comes conviction and true originality. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm